Let me begin with prayer. We'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we're once again thankful to be here this morning to study your word and to discuss it together. Please bless our time together. Um, help us to know your word better. And by knowing your word better, know what it means to be a follower of Christ and what that looks like in our lives. And so bless us today. As always, when correction is needed, may it be done in gentleness and love. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Okay. Hey, Jim. Good to see you guys this morning. We're uh, chapter seven. We're going to start in verse 16. Um, I think we briefly went over that last week, but we'll start there today. Um, and last week we began in chapter seven. We got partway through this passage about t- Jesus teaching in Jerusalem once again, right? And the last time he was in Jerusalem was in chapter five with the healing of the a paralytic man at the pool of uh, Bethesda. Um, and there we saw the Jewish leadership as a response to that healing on the Sabbath in response to what he taught. They, uh, they sought to kill Jesus because they believed Jesus was teaching that he was equal with the father. Uh, and what we've been seeing in chapters five and six, really all throughout the book of John, but especially five and six, is Jesus is really just thoroughly communicating who he is to the people of Israel. Um, in chapter five, he taught in Jerusalem about his relationship with the father and how he and the father are so close that his words are the father's words and that the son only does, does what he sees the father do first. And so even the father and the son are, are distinct from one another. The way that Jesus talks about the relationship, it's almost like they're the same. And then in chapter 6, we saw Jesus emphasize that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven, right? He kept saying that over and over again. Um, and to believe in him is to have eternal life, for he is the bread of life. So we, we see that Jesus is, is he's finding different ways all throughout these chapters to communicate who he is and uh, what it means to have eternal life by believing in him. Um, and as a result... The hostility towards Jesus is starting to ramp up. All right. And we're, we'll see that happen, especially here in chapter seven and eight. But the hostility towards his teachings is starting to ramp up. And we saw people, uh, we saw that hostility some in chapter five and chapter six. We saw some of his followers leave him because they decided what he was teaching was too difficult for them. Um, now this week we're going to continue in chapter seven. Beginning of verse 16, Jesus is in Jerusalem again, right? Uh, Where he has not gone since chapter 5. Because the Jewish leadership has been plotting to kill him. So he he has not been going back down to the region of Judea. He stayed in Galilee. But it was time for the Feast of Booths. Remember Feast of Booths? Feast of Tabernacles? Feast of, uh, there's another one, Sanctuaries maybe? I can't remember exactly. There's quite a few names for that. Feast, but that's the feast that's happening, and he is in he was in Capernaum, and his brothers were telling him, "Hey, you need to go down to the Jerusalem, to uh, to go down to the Feast of Booths, and uh, maybe gain more followers." So I'm summarizing what you said, George. Are you shaking your head? I'm sorry. No, no, no. Oh, okay, you're okay. That's all right, man. I I, I was like I was like I. It, <laughs> I, I was like, I was like, the, I think I'm summarizing correctly. All right. That's all right, man. No, no, no. That's, that's me reading way too much into things. That's not you. All right. 
Um, so he was in Capernaum. His brothers told him to go down. You need to go down to, uh, to the feast. You need to get more followers, right? It really sounds kind of like a brother's, like a, like a family member would say to you, you know, you listen, this is what you need to do. You need to go to the feast. That's where the Jewish leadership is. That's where the religious elite are. That's where the crowds are. You need to go there and gain more followers. But Jesus said no. And the reason he said no wasn't because he was afraid of the Jewish leadership, but because it wasn't yet his time to go down. And that was a particular point of emphasis that I think I made last time was that he's on the father's timetable. He's not on their timetable. Um, so he goes down after them or apart from them. And he enters into Jerusalem secretly where he begins to teach. Well, he enters secretly and then he very publicly goes to the temple and he teaches um, in the in the middle of the feast. And the people are amazed at his teaching and they ask, um, where did he get all this learning when he hasn't attended any type of rabbinical school? And so they're they're amazed, but they're also questioning his authority to teach. And that's where we uh, that's where we are. And back in verse 16, um, Jesus is, is answering this uh, question of his authority to teach. Where does he get it from? So let's begin in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Okay, so there's the answer to the concern of authority. His teaching comes from God who sent him. Um, and I read this last week, but I want to read it again because I find it helpful. Um, one of the commentators notes, one of the consequences of studying for years in the rabbinical centers was the tendency to substitute every pronouncement by appealing to precedent, to earlier rabbinic judgments. Not to do so might indicate a certain arrogance and independence of spirit in danger of drifting from the weight of tradition. Jesus, too, insists he is no inventive upstart, but unlike his rabbinic contemporaries, Neither is his teaching based on a long chain of human tradition. It comes, he insists, from he who sent me, a way of referring to his heavenly father. And we should remember that the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he taught the Jewish leaders. Um, it, so this crowd here might might not be the same exact crowd that was there before, but the Jewish leaders probably would be the people who heard him last time. He taught them how close he and the father were, which I mentioned before. But I'll read here in chapter five, verse 19. I'll just remind us of what he said. So Jesus answered them. I tell you the solemn truth. The son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he does. Verse 24. I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. All right. And so he's taught this before to them that the father is the one that sent him. Okay. Um, so that's the claim he's making. His authority is not his own, but it comes from the father, the one who sent him. That's where he gets his teaching from. All right. Jim. That was uh, chapter five. And so I have uh, verse 19 and I read like a couple of verses and skipped to verse 24. So I've been going back to chapter five specifically because that's the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. All right. And so I think there's a, a decent amount of connections in what's going on here and what's going on and what went on in chapter five, because this is the first time he's been back to Jerusalem since then. Right. Because he's been avoiding uh, Judea. OK. You have something to say, Al? 
No? All right. All right. <laughs> Verse 17. 17 and 18. Let's keep going. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Okay. First, let's start with this. All right. Um, who would who would want who would be claiming to do God's will? Who would want to um, want to be thought of as doing God's will in Jerusalem? Say that again. Pharisees, yeah. Who else? Righteous people, yeah. Pharisees, righteous people. Really, anyone I, you would imagine would want to be claiming, yeah, I'm, I'm doing God's will. I'm interested in doing God's will, right? I think anybody would would want to make that claim. So especially Jewish leadership. Um, so we have Jesus up here saying, if you're actually interested in doing God's will, then you would believe my words. All right. That's quite the claim. Uh, to something, that's quite something to say to the Jewish, the Jews and the Jewish leadership in the temple. But this isn't the first time he's made this point. He's made this point before back in chapter five. If you knew the father, then you would know me because I was sent by the father. All right, next. How how can they know whether or not Jesus is lying or that he is actually sent from God? What is what is he saying? How can they know? Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, actually, if they really wanted to be following God, they would know. It's kind of like like if an, if that the real your attitude is that I want to know God better, mm-hmm. then Automatically, they will know that it comes from God. Yes, he. He's teaching God's will. He is saying that. Yeah, go ahead. He's teaching God's will. Okay. It's not even so much, you know. He 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 doesn't say um, if anyone wants to do God's will, he'll believe my teaching. Even he says they'll you'll know my teaching because he's teaching God's will. And so, if they want to do God's will, and if they want to know that Jesus is, is teaching God's will, they just have to look at his teaching, because Jesus is teaching God's will. Okay, yeah, listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> if, you're, if you want to know what God is, is, God's will is, listen to what I'm saying, and you would know. Um, what's this idea? Why, why is he talking about authority? No, why is he? Why is he? So he says, uh, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm, I, I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. I mean, what's this? What's the point he's making about authority and, and glory and, and all of this? I mean, how? There's a right way and a wrong way. The right way is to say God's directing me. Okay. But anybody might say that, right? Lots of people have made that claim. Okay. They're looking at for their true motivation. And that's what Jesus is saying. My true motivation is not me getting better, more popular. Okay. 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 Right, but he doesn't mention the miracles. I mean, I don't disagree with you. The miracles are a proof that he has... Um, divine power, absolutely. Um, now, 
Okay, so to your point, you were saying that uh, he's not he's not seeking the praise of men necessarily. Okay, um, so I yeah I think that's that's kind of what he's getting at is that he if he was seeking uh, his own glory, um, he's not doing a, a very good job of seeking his own glory. All right, all right so uh, let me look at what I was gonna say here. Um, so yeah, if if he was lying, seeing his own glory, he would be interested in saying things that would just would earn him praise, saying things that would be pleasing to the ears of the people who heard it. But as we learned from last chapter, Jesus isn't really that interested in saying things that will be pleasing to the ears of everyone who listens to him, right? He said things and that that and people that heard it were very offended, right? And uh in fact, he's, he's, so he's, he's very easy, willing to even offend the people who are following him, um, if it gets them to understand the truth or make a decision about it, at least. And, uh, and that, and we know that the Jewish leadership have been trying to kill Jesus, right? They hate him. He said this back in verse seven in this chapter to his brothers. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. All right. So, he, what kind of Old Testament character does he remind you of when he's talking like this? When he, he has, he's sent on behalf of the Father, and what he's saying isn't necessarily going to get him praise. It might actually get people to hate him, but he's going to say it anyways. What? Elijah? Jeremiah? Yeah. Any of, it reminds me of the Old Testament prophets, um, where God has sent them to say something to a disobedient people, and he's going to say something that they don't want to hear, but he's going to say it anyway. Okay, so that's how you know that's that's a good way to distinguish who's telling the truth and who's not. Listen, I'm, I'm what I'm telling you, uh, you don't like, and you're hating me for it, but I'm going to say it anyways because God sent me. All right, I think that's the, I think that's what he's saying here. It reminds me of the Old Testament uh, prophets, right? Well, he yeah, he was willing to offend them. Yeah, he, he, he's not saying things just to please people. Right. Um, so that's, I think that's his point. They could trust his words because he's not trying to earn their praise. He's obeying the one who sent him because he values his father's approval more than he values their praise. All right. Um, Jesus talked about this back in chapter five, the last time he was in Jerusalem, verse 44 in chapter five. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Okay, so you can believe me because I'm not seeking the glory from you, but can you trust each other when you're seeking glory from each other? All right. Um, okay. And then we, he keeps going. Verse 19. Has Moses not given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Okay. Uh, who Who's... Who's not keeping the law here? Who's he accusing? Yeah, the the ones trying to kill him, right? That's right. How how they well they're breaking the law because they're trying to commit murder. Okay. That didn't please them either. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's going to be a theme as we see. He's going to keep saying things that aren't going to like it. Their lives were. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he specifically is 
citing their intentions for murder here. That's just why I bring that up. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree that their breaking of the law would be more pervasive than that. Yeah. Um, okay. So by, by seeking to murder someone innocent, they're breaking the law of Moses. So those people who are trying to kill Jesus, um, are obviously not seeking to do the will of God because they're breaking the law of God. Um, and therefore, just as Jesus said, they don't see that Jesus' teaching is from God. Verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. What does that mean? You have a you have a demon. How does that strike you when they say that? You're kind of kind of that's kind of what it feels like when they say you have a demon. You're you're crazy. You're paranoid. Who is trying to kill you? So the crowd here wouldn't be um, uh, the crowd here would be referring to uh, everyone who has come to Jerusalem for the feast. So it wouldn't just be people who live in Jerusalem. It would be the uh, diaspora Jews as well. Is that how you say that diaspora? Okay, good. I'll just say that differently sometimes. Diaspora Jews. Um, So it wouldn't just be the people from Jerusalem, but it's like the entire crowd. So apparently the crowd, there are people who are not aware of the plot to kill Jesus. And so they accuse him of having a demon. It's not going to be the last time they do that. Um, But it's, it's their explanation for what they see to be in, um, unreasonable behavior. No one's trying to kill you. Who's trying to kill you? You have a demon. So you No, I think the, I think the context play, plays a big part, but I think most of the times it has been the leadership. I think sometimes when it says the Jews, it could be a little bit broader than that. Which one? Which one? Crowd. Yes, I said. I said crowd. Yes. As a po- I mean, I I would say the leadership is listening as well. Okay. I do. So I I think I think crowd here. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would, and so the trying to think about what Al is saying here, they make this, John makes distinctions and we're just about, we're going to see one in just a little bit. There's the crowd, there's the people of Jerusalem, and then there's the Jews where it refers to specifically Jewish leadership. When I hear crowd, I don't necessarily think of the Jewish leadership, but the Jewish leadership would be listening, right? They would be there. Okay. But the crowd probably does not refer to the Jewish leadership. Yeah, I think I was trying to agree with you. Okay, okay. The, the crowd is, is not the same people as who are seeking to kill Jesus. Yeah, yeah. The crowd yeah. says, you're crazy. Yeah. Who's trying to kill you? Because they're not, not, which I think was the point you were making. That is the point I was making. I got caught up in semantics of, uh, of course, the Jewish leadership were, were listening. There's other places where it says people. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Where it says the people instead of the crowd, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in, uh, um, I can't remember. It's in John or in Mark where the crowd is like this is almost a character that changes as time goes on. And the, the crowd is, um, might be in a different gospel, but at one point they're supportive of Jesus and they're celebrating him and they slowly start to, start to turn. And then when, at the crucifixion, the crowd is the one shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Right. Yeah, fickle. That's the word. If you look at verse 32, it says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. Is that, that word crowd the same word as the crowd? That would be my guess. That would be my guess, but I haven't looked it up. Yeah, I would guess that, though. If John is, if it says crowd, it probably is the same word. I'll, I'll look at it a little bit more when we get there. Yeah. Okay. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. You're crazy. All right. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. What's the one work he's referring to? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Cause we know, we know Jesus did a lot of works. And so he's, I did one work. Well, what? Um, um, uh, the last time he was in Jerusalem where he healed the paralytic. Yeah. And that's right. On the Sabbath day. Um, and I think we can, I think that we can know that because he's back in Jerusalem and that's the last thing that he did in Jerusalem was he did that healing. And then we have that whole preaching about his closeness with the father and the witnesses of who Jesus were. That's a, that's what that's referring to. All right. So there he, there was a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. And so everyone would have known he was paralyzed and Jesus healed him and told him to pick up his mat and walk, but he did it on the Sabbath. And so there was marveling at the miracle, but also anger at it as well. Okay. So that's the one work. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Okay. We'll stop there. We'll talk about circumcision real quick. Um, the rite of circumcision came before Moses, right? Does anybody remember when the rite of circumcision came about? Hmm? Abraham. And it's, and it's Genesis chapter 17, and it's when Abram's cha- God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And so I never know to call him Abram or Abraham there. But uh, that's right. So that's that's where we saw circumcision in the beginning. Um, I'm going to read that passage to you, okay? Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. This is what it says. And we went through this. We studied through this. You got, most of you were here when we did that, right? It seems like a real long time ago. But you guys remember this. I know. You're going to read it, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember everything that's going on here. Uh, chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. 9 through 14. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep the covenantal requirement I am imposing on you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my requirement that you and your descendants after you must keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskins. This will be a reminder of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who who is not one of your descendants. They must indeed be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money. The side of my covenant will be visible in your flesh as a permanent reminder. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people. 
he has failed to carry out my requirement. Okay, so a newborn uh, boy needed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, and so you can see the problem that Jesus is bringing up. Um, it would some that eighth day would sometimes fall on the Sabbath. All right, so you can see where there might be a problem. If it falls on the Sabbath, what do we do? Do we circumcise them to keep the covenantal requirements, or do we rest? Does that work? Okay, so they had to make a decision. Um, let's continue on, verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Okay. So they circumcise on the Sabbath. They decided to do that. Why do people circumcise on the Sabbath? To keep the law. All right. Okay. So they, they've decided that even though it's the Sabbath, they can perform the circumcision on the Sabbath in order to keep the law. They're not, they decide. So I think what Jesus is saying here, he's, He's not saying, see, you, you broke the Sabbath, so why are you upset that I broke the Sabbath? Okay, he's not, he's not saying that. Um, he's, he's not claiming that they broke the Sabbath at all. And I think he's saying that perform, by performing the circumcision, even on the Sabbath, that they have kept God's law. All right, they have made a way to keep God's law, and what they did was, was good. Um, and he's saying in the same way that by healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus also has kept the law of God. All right. Now, they're arguing. Um, Jesus is arguing from, I think, from a lesser to a greater. Now, would the Jews have seen it that way, that healing on a man on the Sabbath is something greater than performing a circumcision? I think that's, that's part of the problem is that they don't see it that way. Argument in silence because uh, if God being God didn't want them to establish circumcise the Sabbath, he would have said you can obey the Sabbath, uh, Sabbath. unless you get circumcised or something like that. He would have he would have specified. You must have, you must circumcise on the eighth day, unless it falls on the Sabbath. Then you go, then you go to the night. I mean, what, what are you saying? Right, right. Argument from silence. Yeah. What's an argument from silence? That they had to make a decision about the circumcision? It doesn't say that. Well, they, yeah, they, they had to make a decision on it, and I think Jesus is agreeing with it. Yeah. No, but we breaking the law. Okay. circumcising on the Sabbath. Well, so, okay, so I, I think I think he's accusing them again of not understanding the Mosaic Law. And that's something he did back in Chapter 5. Go ahead, Ken. Do you, do, you think, <clears throat> do you think he could be saying the Sabbath was never intended to exclude doing good? You know, it was oh. intended to exclude circumcision on the Sabbath. You know, they weren't breaking the law. It was never intended to be that exclusive. And therefore, it's not, it's not, you're not breaking the Sabbath. No, you're, you're, it, it was never intended to exclude doing good. And therefore, by Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath, it, this, it was not breaking it because it was never intended to exclude. That. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Is that uh, it's never intended to exclude doing good. Yeah, yeah. Jesus says, 
if one of you has a donkey and falls into a pit on the Sabbath, are you not going to help him out? Yeah, yeah. And where is that? Is that in Matthew? Where he says that? I can't. I can't remember where that is. Is it Matthew? Maybe. I'm just naming the gospel, so <laughs> it's in one. It's one of those. But yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, he and he might be making a different point there, but that point is is certainly a part of it. Um, go ahead. Yes, George. I, I, I think it's goes along with the same idea. Yes. He says, "I can like heal man." For that one woman who's sick all of this time, he heals her on that day. Same. It's all the same. Uh, the idea is that I think what Ken said. Is the idea that doing good is not to be a good it, it makes sense that he would do it. Yeah. Even on the Sabbath. Because it doesn't doesn't violate yeah. the original intent. And it's it's um it's so they've they've been able to justify circumcising a baby on the Sabbath, but they can't justify healing fully healing a man on the Sabbath. And um we saw he, he he does that one miracle, and just from that one miracle, the, a murder plot is hatched against Jesus. Uh, they one miracle, and they want to kill him. Um, and and so Jesus is telling them that they don't understand the Sabbath and the law. Um, go ahead, Richard. What's well, kind of interesting to me in perspective? This gentleman spent for thirty-eight years. That that particular day, maybe it was God's will that on that particular day, Jesus met that particular man and said, nope, that ain't the day. Because in future, you're going to need to go through this uh, fire and the people are going to be, you're going to be tested and the people's will will be tested about, you know, the battle between what is the Sabbath and what do you do on the Sabbath, what don't you do, and the whole thing about keeping law, what is keeping law. Maybe this was foreordained. He was supposed to get into trouble in the hot water with the Pharisees. Oh, yeah. I mean, why Why not on a Monday? Or <laughs> why not wait one more day? <laughs> yeah. You know, let's follow that theme, Richard. I think that's good. This is this is all according to the timing of the Father. Jesus follows the timing of the Father. Um, he doesn't. I mean, and so that's, I mean, and, and that's a theme in this passage that we'll touch on again, but it's it's pointing us to the fact that when Jesus does eventually get arrested and crucified, that that is not outside of the, the will of the Father and the plan that Jesus is following and obeying. Yeah, George. I think that the, the whole idea is that God is doing this. I mean, why would God put in the law, you can't do a miracle on Saturday? Because in this case, God himself, he says, my authority, and I think that's where he's bringing this in, my authority is from God the Father, so whatever I do, it is it's God doing it. So you can't complain about him doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's right. And also opening their eyes to, to their mis- misunderstanding of what the Sabbath is supposed to be about. Um, and that's and it's it's all I mean, it's it's problematic for the Jewish leaders because he is um, cutting at their authority and what they've always taught and probably how they've punished in the, in the past. Um, based on what people have done on the Sabbath, and Jesus is trying to say, no, you you can do good on the Sabbath. Um, all right, let's do one more. Okay. They work on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So there's some submission 
to the fact that something has to be done on the Sabbath. That's what you're saying. You you looked that up quick. <laughs> okay. And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall shall have one sheep and if it shall palm? Okay, so that's Matthew twelve, eleven. All right, it was Matthew. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. Even today there's a lot of problems with the Sabbath for some people. You know. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the Sabbath in a lot of groups these days too. Yes. And I will leave it there, Joan. <laughs> Verse uh, 24. All right. And so we're going to go past this, but uh, this is where I would have been the last time if I got here. Uh, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Um, do not judge by appearances. Is that a problem the Pharisees have? He's not just talking to them, but yeah, right. They like everything they do is is that you can see whether or not someone is observing the law. But then also Jesus probably wouldn't fit what they would expect the Messiah to be, at least their expectations of the Messiah. It says judge with right judgment, um, righteous judgment. Yours might say. Um, some some commentators point out an Old Testament parallel where they see that similar Greek phrase where God is giving instructions to judges in Deuteronomy. He says the judges must make righteous judgment, meaning they can't be hindered by bribery or partiality. Their judgments can't be perverted by the wrong criteria. I think a similar idea is being made here. Jesus says, don't judge me the way you are accustomed to judging everyone by how well they submit and follow to your tra- traditions. Um, don't judge me as the Messiah based on a faulty understanding of the Messiah, but seek the will of God, listen to my words, and believe in me. Uh, Jesus wants them to make a judgment about him unhindered by their reliance on outward appearances, as they have done in the past. And I think uh, I think a consistent theme of the book of John is uh, it's just the reliance on the physical outward things compared to um, looking at uh, the spiritual things, the the way God is working, um, like of course his discussion with Nicodemus, um, that was a problem for Nicodemus, is he was focused on uh, outward expressions, and Jesus says, no, you need to be born again, you need the Spirit to change your heart. So it's a consistent theme is not to focus on outward appearances, but but by faith, um, look at spiritual things. Okay, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. All right, well, I'll talk about that in just a second. Where do they get that from? All right, so notice, first of all, who is speaking here. All right, it's some of the people of Jerusalem. Okay, I think that's an intentional distinction from the crowd before. He didn't just say crowd again. So some of the people of Jerusalem, um, meaning people who maybe live in Jerusalem and might be more aware 
of the plots to kill Jesus from the Pharisees. Okay, so what when they when they say um, when they say isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Uh, what are what are they what are they saying? What are they uh, what are they asking here? Why don't they kill? <laughs> That's right. Well, isn't this a the guy they're trying to kill? Why is he, he? They're just letting him sit here and talk. Why don't they do anything? Why don't they do anything? And they actually they actually come up with an explanation of their own. Is it because they actually believe he's the Christ? You know, this this is why why aren't they arresting this man? They're just letting them talk. And of course, we know that Jesus isn't being arrested and killed right now, not because of the Pharisees, but because God is not letting him be arrested and killed right now. Um, oh, they're definitely, yeah, that's right. They're afraid of the crowd. They're, they're worried the crowd is going to turn on them if they arrest Jesus at this time. Yeah, I'm always, there's always like, the, the Jews are not allowed to kill. They're not allowed to execute, right? But then you see some examples of the Bible where they stone people and there doesn't seem to be any repercussions. And so I'm always wondering, you know, do you, are, sometimes I'm just around, it's not looking, they're not there, they're not paying attention. When they stop, I don't know. I, I always think about that. But uh, that's a different point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. In the Roman, they were the ones that had that ultimate authority. That's right. That's right. They did. But then you look at Stephen, and they just decided to kill Stephen. They didn't have to get permission. So that's what I'm wondering about. It's like, why were they allowed to do that? There no, doesn't seem to be any repercussions. But that's a whole different passage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. I. All right. Um, now, why? okay, so we're going to talk about here. Why do the people believe he can't be the Messiah? And it says because um, because they know all about Jesus that he that he came from Nazareth and his family not, now resides in Capernaum. All right, they know where Jesus is from, and this goes contrary to a belief that was held in that time, apparently, um, that the Messiah would be wholly unknown until he appeared for Israel's redemption. Okay, um, let me read the Net Bible. I think has a really good summary. Of this belief, and this is what the Net Bible says: the view of these people regarding the Messiah, that no one will know where he comes from, reflects the idea that the origin of the Messiah is a mystery. And this is this comes from the Talmud, which is a written record of the oral traditions at the time. Um, apparently, Old Testament prophetic passages, like um, found in Malachi and Daniel, were interpreted by some as indicating a sudden appearance of Messiah. It appears that this was not a universal view. The scribes summoned by Herod at the coming of the Magi in Matthew 2 knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So it's important to remember that Jewish messianic expectations in the early first century were not monolithic. All right. So not uniform all throughout. Um, But there were some variances. And we see one of those here. And uh, Carson notes in his commentary, I, I think this is good. This is, of course, another instance of the celebrated jo- Johannine irony that Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites are not as informed of Jesus' true origins as they think they are. All right. But that to answer your question, Joan. That appears just to be a belief held 
at that time. Um, that's people from Jerusalem apparently helped. Okay. We'll continue on. We'll finish this passage real quick. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Okay. And we, we saw, of course, according to chapter five, we know this, who sent Jesus, the father, God, the father sent Jesus. All right. And so Jesus, they don't, Jesus says they don't know the one who sent him, meaning they're saying they don't know God, the father. That's what he's saying. Um, Jesus knows him because God sent him and he is true. Um, but they don't know God. So his first sentence, you know me and you know where I come from, needs to be taken in light of the rest of his statement. Sure, they know he's from Nazareth, but they don't know he's from God because they don't know God. All right, and that's a point he's been consistently making all throughout these chapters. And we'll see next, the Jews understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. All right, again, that theme of... uh Jesus is on the father's timeline, not on theirs, not on anyone else's, not on his brothers or his families or the Jewish people's, but he's on the father's timeline. And so when Jesus is finally captured and crucified, it's because the father had willed it to be so. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Okay, and so when you look at verses 31 and 30 and 31 together, you can see the disparity of responses to Jesus. Some can't stand that he accuses them of not knowing God, and yet others hear that accusation, couple it with the miracles he has performed, and believe that he in, is indeed the Christ, right? Which is the point you were making before about the miracles. Um, and so this is, uh, we, we see some people, even though he's saying things that are offensive and that, um, are revealing to some people that they don't actually know God like they think they do. Um, some people actually do respond and, and believe. All right. Jesus is the light. He's the great revealer. Okay. We'll stop there. All right. That's where we need to stop today. Um, yeah, George. Sure. Sure. I think what happens is that through if you look at their point of view at their time, okay. they were basing it on the Old Testament. They were confused. There were two Messiahs. Some thought they would be, uh, must have been two Messiahs, suffering the Messiah was going to die. And another Messiah will come uh, when he comes suddenly for his second coming. So the first and second okay. coming, the, the verses sometimes are together, so close that, you know, it, it leaves them uh, in that area of being confused. I, I don't think that his disciples, none of those people even understood uh, that Jesus would come and take two separate comings of the same individual. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they're, they're confused. And, and, you know, Interesting. Yeah, they certainly, they certainly seem to have, there seem to be like differing expectations of what the Messiah would be. And all of them were inadequate to some extent and, this, and illustrated their misunderstandings of Scripture. But at the same time, um, if they would just listen to Jesus, they would they would understand what those passages are revealing. Yes. Um, one example about David, how could he call him his, his son, and how could he call him Lord? 
Yeah. Yeah, the, the passages that uh, the disciples use to preach the gospel in the book of Acts is always so interesting to me because it's not what I would have chosen, <laughs> you know. But I, I do wonder if those are debated passages that, you know, that maybe the Jews um, used to prove a certain point or they just weren't sure what it meant. And then the apostles came and said, OK, we know what this means now. This was this is how this was fulfilled. Um, OK. Well, anyways, let me, let me, uh, we're going to, we need to stop. I need to end. Um, I, so this, I love the book of John because the book of John is you just hear the words of Jesus more than any other book. And Jesus is real intent on teaching people about spiritual realities. He's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's just amazing how much he talks about spiritual realities and, um, and doing God's will and, 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 and faith in the heart and all this stuff. And so it, it makes me think about how, you know, how often do I look at people or circumstances in my life and think about, you know, do I see it? I see it as either a, a blessing or an inconvenience, whatever happens to me. Do I ever think of what is God doing? Um, what are the spiritual realities behind what's going on in my life and the circumstances that I complain about. Maybe God's actually working and doing something important. Maybe I should be looking for that. So that would be my encouragement to you uh, from this passage is to think about not just the external appearances, but think about what what is God doing? What is God's will? And what is he doing uh, uh, despite what it appears is happening to me? Um, that's the application I would take. At least there's a lot more we could take from this passage, but I'll, I'll, I need to end and we'll continue in chapter seven next week. All right. Our father in heaven, we again, thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Christ that we get to see that you have preserved for us. Um, the miraculous preservation of the words of Christ, Lord, that, uh, happened so, so long ago. We have access to now that you've given to us, Lord. We're so grateful for that. We're grateful for how you have revealed yourself in your word. Continue to help us to understand it, to know you better, to know what it means to be a follower of Christ, to live out so that we might live out the Christian life in a way that is glorifying to your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.